How Link to the Past directs the player. That's part of the conversation in this episode of Legendary Adventures Podcast. From the Hylian Book of Medora. If you make it to Sanctuary, listen carefully to what the Sage and Zelda have to say. Now you should know what you have to do. From here on, the places you go will be displayed as symbols on the map. It's probably a good idea to keep an eye on the map while progressing. Start by going to Kakariko Village and picking up the information that is waiting for you there. You can also find some items in this village. Players should have no trouble finding Kakariko Village. It's marked on the map with a red X over the northeastern corner. This is a first example of an objective marker within the Legend of Zelda series. I tried to find some history on the inclusion of objective markers in video games, but I largely came up empty. Maps or mini-maps have appeared in games at least since the 80s. We saw both in the original Legend of Zelda. The mini-map was really more of a radar while on the overworld just showing Link's general location. However, within dungeons, once the dungeon map was collected, it would fill in and show Link's exact location within the dungeon. Zelda 2 got rid of all of the maps, but they are back here in A Link to the Past with players having a full and detailed map of the overworld from the very start and its build right into the game. When it comes to objective markers, an article on game developer titled The History of the Quest Compass and Its Dreadful Convenience by Felipe Pepe makes it clear that objectives marked on screen with a compass or an arrow have been around since at least the mid to late 90s. On-screen arrows are used to guide the player in Grand Theft Auto, which was released in 1997, and in Crazy Taxi in 1999. The article, however, is only focused on quest markers that appear on a screen compass or that are superimposed, like an arrow. To my knowledge, in Zelda games, objective markers are generally only visible to players when they open a subscreen map. There are a few instances where players can see objectives without going to a subscreen, but I'd say that's the exception and not the norm from the series. I could find no information on when objective markers like these first started to appear, but we can plainly see they were part of the Zelda series since the early 90s. I should also note that while players are directed to Kakariko Village, they don't have to go there. Players can explore. Much of the map is reachable to the player, although players will need to locate items like bombs and later dungeon items to uncover many of the secrets on the map. If players already know the location of the Elder, or simply find him through exploring, there's nothing stopping them from progressing into the dungeon. However, there are items and hints that are found in Kakariko Village that are useful for the adventure ahead, so it's really not a bad idea to visit the village. And hey, how about that overworld music? I would say A Link to the Past is the game that solidified this theme as THE Zelda theme. Of course, it made its appearance in the first Legend of Zelda where it sounded like this. Zelda 2 used only the opening fanfare before its overworld theme went off in its own direction. Now the original theme is back, and thanks to the additional power of the Super Nintendo, it sounds fuller, with synthesized brass really driving home the grandeur of the theme. Entering into Kakariko Village, players will notice that the music changes from the classic overworld theme to a peaceful, somewhat sleepy theme. This is the first appearance of the now iconic Kakariko Village theme. It appears in a number of games in this series, sometimes as a straightforward rearrangement as seen in Ocarina of Time,
to a dramatically different arrangement seen in The Wind Waker. It's a beloved musical cue, and Zelda fans really sit up and take notice of it. Twilight Princess managed to avoid controversy when introducing an entirely new theme for Kakariko Village by opening that new theme with a very clear reference to the original. Breath of the Wild released, it was not uncommon to hear players express their disappointment in that game's Kakariko Village theme. It included no references to the theme from The Link to the Past. An old woman in the marked home tells us that the Elder is hiding, though she doesn't know where. She does, however, tell us more about the Master Sword, saying it was forged by the ancient inhabitants of the land known as the Hylia, and that the sword now rests in the forest. She says someone else in town might know the Elder's location, turning us loose to explore. In Kakariko, players can find the former hideout for thieves, it's full of treasure, there's also an underground grotto with treasure, there are two magic bottles to find, a bug net, and a number of hints that will come in handy later. However, players will also learn that Link is now a wanted man, and a couple of villagers will call castle guards on him. A young boy with blue hair and southern Kakariko tells Link that the Elder is his grandfather. He explains that he's hidden on the other side of the castle and places a new objective marker on the map. Here, I decided to do a little more exploring. I entered the Lost Woods and found a thieves' hideout with treasure. I got a heart piece and a mushroom. It smells of sweet, rotten fruit. Yummy. The mushroom is the key item for a side quest. I could have cashed it in right away, but instead I returned to the main story quest path. Traveling east of the castle, players will find an area with dead grass, ruins, and Armos enemies. These are the statues that spring to life when Link is near. The Elder, Sahasrala, is inside a small ruin on a lower level. He reveals that players will have to collect three pendants in order to acquire the Master Sword. The first is in the Eastern Palace, which is in the northeast corner of this section of the map. Entering the palace gives us a taste of the first of two main dungeon themes. This music is used in all dungeons of the light world. It has ominous bass notes and a somewhat mournful melody. It's played on synthesized trumpet. Visually, the Eastern Palace is a straightforward dungeon. Its color and tile work is distinct from the lower levels and the sewers of Hyrule Palace. The Eastern Palace is green rather than blue. The floor texture is more uniform. But this dungeon doesn't really stand out with a particularly strong theme. In terms of looks, it's about as generic as you can get. As with Hyrule Castle before, the Eastern Palace is split into two distinct sections. The first section is primarily built upon two looping paths. It's designed to give the impression of a much more complicated and spread out level than it actually is. The second segment is just a straightforward gauntlet of enemies. When players first enter, they'll immediately be presented with three doors. Two are open, the center is closed. As is the theme here, this gives the impression of a much more complicated space than you'll actually experience. The doors to the east and west lead to immediate dead ends. Players must instead lift a pot in front of the center door to reveal a floor switch that when pressed will open the door. 
In the next room, players are introduced to camouflaged floor switches. It matches the floor, but it's still not too hard to spot. In the room after that, players will have to avoid large bubbles that shoot from a hole in the wall. There are two bridges that pass over the pathway with the bubbles. One can be reached from the room with the bubbles to find some extra rupees. The other one will pass over later. Heading north from the bubble room, we come to the largest room of the dungeon. It serves as a hub of sorts and is the ultimate goal of this section of the dungeon. A large chest can be seen on a lower level. There are two paths, one on the east, one on the west. The path on the east is technically optional. It leads players on a looping path to collect the dungeon map, and it will eventually bring players back to the main room. The path to the west also leads down a looping path, but it's ultimately a much larger, much more complex one, and it's required. While traveling down the west loop, players will encounter a telepathic tile. Interacting with this tile gives players the hint, either from Surhasserla or Princess Zelda. These hint tiles strike me as the earliest version of what would evolve into the series' companion system. The companions don't fully develop and appear until Ocarina of Time, but we can clearly see the next step from these hint tiles to an owl in Link's Awakening, and then on to Navi the Fairy in Ocarina of Time. The hint here in this dungeon is that we can use the dungeon item to defeat armored foes. As players continue on down the looping path, they'll be taken to the eastern side of the dungeon and then loop back to the western side, walking over the bubble room on a bridge. They'll eventually reach a room with enemies called anti-fairies circling around a jar. Other enemies in the room must be defeated. That includes Stalfos, some tentacle enemies called Popos, and a large armored cyclops enemy called an Igor. This is the enemy referenced in the hint from the telepathic tile. Igors can be defeated with the sword, but we'll find that the dungeon item's a lot more effective. Defeating all of the enemies causes the anti-fairies to scatter, allowing players to lift the jar, press a switch, and reveal a chest that contains the big key. Remember, big keys are used to open big chests and big locks. The central room contains both. Inside the chest we find the dungeon item, the bow. Arrows come with this bow, unlike in the first game. Arrows are also distinct collectible items. The bow no longer uses rupees to fire, as was the case in the first game. The big key leads to the second segment of the dungeon. In this segment, the rooms are laid out in an L shape and players simply move one to another with no branching paths. They'll have to defeat multiple Igor enemies, dodge another round of bubbles that shoot from the wall. This time they're shooting from all sides when we see them. The room appears to contain four camouflage switches, but only one is real. Finding the real switch opens the path forward. Players will continue forward, defeating more Igors, and they'll eventually reach a room with a horned skull pattern on the floor outside a door. Each time I play, I always think this is marking the door to the boss, but no, it actually leads to an antechamber where players will have to defeat more Igors before taking on the boss. Zelda 2 introduced the idea of a unique musical theme for bosses. A Link to the Past brings it back, cementing boss themes into the Zelda series. Here, in this game, the boss theme has a brief introduction, and then it settles into a short loop of three ascending notes, followed by three descending notes. Take a listen. The arrangement is heavy and synthesized brass, and a driving snare drum beat in the background that really creates a frantic feel to the music. The boss of the dungeon is the Armos Knights. Armos, of course, are the living statue enemies that were introduced in the original game, and we saw the standard Armos outside this dungeon. In this game, they spring to life when Link gets close to them rather than when he touches them. The Armos Knights are giant Armos enemies that jump around the room in a pattern, first moving in a circular formation before lining up on the north wall, then marching south before repeating the pattern over. They can be defeated with the sword, but they fall faster to arrows. This perhaps is something else that we can glean from that earlier hint tile. 
Three arrows will defeat a knight. When only one remains, it will turn red and begin actively trying to crush the player. At this point, I personally start using the sword. I just find it's easier to land hints, but you can still use the arrows and it will defeat the enemy faster. After the last knight falls, players are rewarded with a heart container and the Pendant of Courage. Heart containers from bosses are required to be collected in this game. I believe that's a remnant of the design philosophy from Zelda 2 just living on here. There, players were given an automatic level up for completing a dungeon. There is, of course, no level up here. The heart container is the closest thing to it. While heart containers from bosses were largely optional in the first game, and they'll become optional again later in the series, they are required here, showing the influence of Zelda 2. Returning to Sahrasala, he marks the location of the next two pendants on the map and gives Link the Pegasus Shoes. These allow Link to perform a fast-moving dash attack and are required to complete the game. Sahasrala also tells Link of a useful item that's found east of Lake Hylia. In the next episode, we'll go get that item, we'll take a trip to the library, and we'll travel to the Desert Palace. Please subscribe if you'd like to follow along and consider sharing this podcast with another Zelda fan. I'm Paul Riley. Thanks for listening.